Well, as you know, there's a consistent theme throughout the Bible that shows that we should live every day in light of the last day. That means that we need to always be ready. Now, there have been those who have read the Bible historically and said, we need to actually pinpoint with precision the actual date of that day that we need to be ready for. We could pick a number of examples. One came in 1831. There was a a really successful farmer who was also a lay pastor, a Baptist preacher. His name was William Miller. He began preaching that Jesus would return and that it would come no later than March 21st, 1844. And we find that over 100,000 people actually followed him in believing in and trusting this date. Well, that day came and went. It was very uneventful. And so he went back and he began to recalculate his numbers according to the scriptures. And he said, you know what? I think I got something off. It looks like what I meant to say was October 22nd, 1844. And that day came and it passed. It became known to all of his followers as the great disappointment. They had all these expectations that Jesus was going to come back. Some of them sold all of their things. Some of them quit going to work in preparation for this day. I mean, this day means that the world doesn't matter anymore. It's passing away. There was one man, Henry Emmons, who was a follower. He said, I waited all Tuesday, and dear Jesus did not come. I lay prostrate for two days without any pain, sick with disappointment. Now, maybe you're like one of these followers. You are, you are sick over the fact that you think that Jesus should have come back by now. Surely he should have come back by now. Maybe you feel like Jesus is watching a different news station than you are, having a different experience in creation than you are. Anybody feel like sometimes there's been a day where you felt like, are you sure you're not late Jesus? Anybody? It's just me. It's okay. I have that experience often. It just feels like this life is so long. Well, today we'll see that Peter, like Jesus says, that the most important thing to remember about this last day is not the exact date, but that you be ready, that you're ready when that day does come. Now, we're back in our Remember This series this morning in Second Peter. You'll remember that Peter has been anticipating his death and he penned this letter to his and future generations because he wants to warn them of these false teachers who have come claiming one of two things. One, that Jesus is not coming back. And therefore, second, that it doesn't matter how you live morally. You can kind of live how you want. Well, it's been about 20 years since Christ has died at the time of the writing of this letter, I think. That is a long time. A long time to wait if you were anticipating the return of Jesus sooner than later. And and false teachers, they capitalized on that that longing in the the human heart of Christians as they awaited Christ's return. Peter responds to, to both of their lies. He says, first, that those who love the morally excellent Christ will seek to grow in Christian virtue more and more until Jesus returns. That's what a true Christian looks like. And second, he says the day of the Lord or the day of Christ, it's coming. It's coming. And on that day, the old heavens and the old earth will pass away, giving way to a new heavens and a new earth, free from the corruption of this broken world that is full of sin. That day's coming. 
All things will be made new on that day. Now that day is going to be the best day ever for those who are following Jesus. But for those who are following the way of the false teachers, they face the eternal fire of God's judgment. That's what 2 Peter says to us. Well, last week we saw that Peter had identified these false teachers as scoffers who were mockingly asking a couple of questions. He addressed the the first question last week in verses 1 to 7, where is the promise of his coming? If you want to know about that, you can go and listen to last week's sermon. But this week he moves on to a second question in verses 8 to 10. Now he doesn't have it listed here. You kind of have to reconstruct it, but I believe that the the false teachers were mockingly asking something like this. Didn't Jesus say he was coming back soon? Like really soon. So why is he taking so long? Why is he so slow in coming back? What's with the delay? And then they began to attack the idea of this delay. Now our big idea this morning is this. It's that we need to patiently wait for the last day just like God does. We need to patiently wait for that last day, just like God does. Now first, we'll notice in verse 8 this, that waiting on the return of Jesus can feel so long. Waiting on the return of Jesus, it it can feel so long. Amen? All right. Now the but that begins verse 8 moves us from the scoffers so you remember in verse 5, they overlooked the fact, Peter highlights, they overlooked the fact that proved that our God has intervened in the heavens and earth in the past, changing them decisively, and then he'll do it again in the future. What we find here, though, is, is you'll take note in verse 8 that he says to these beloved Christians, I don't want you to overlook This fact, they overlooked that fact. I don't want you to overlook this fact in verse 8. He says this, look at verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Now many have understood Peter in this verse to be pointing to Psalm 90, verse 4, in some way, where Moses is praying. And as Moses prays, he He says, for a thousand years in your sight, God, are but as yesterday when it is past and as a a watch in the night. Now, some Jews and early Christians actually have have taken that verse very literally to mean that a thousand human years equals one day to God. It's like kind of a math formula. And they proceeded to use this for a, a type of standard of measurement to decode the Bible to discover greater clarity about the date of the last day. So they they see this as kind of a a code for getting secrets out of the Bible. They expected history to follow a seven-day pattern like creation with the literal thousand day of the Lord on the last day. Now in the past, that idea of a thousand-year reign was called Chileism. It's kind of like C-H, Chileism, but but without the Chile. And, and, And it's today called premillennialism. It's the idea that there's a thousand-year reign at the end of the days. And there have been different kinds of constructs as to what this looks like. Now, you don't need, though, I don't think, Psalm 90 or 2 Peter 3 to get to a premillennial view. You don't need that to to see that there might be a thousand-year little reign on earth. In fact, if you look to Revelation 21 to 6, there is a discussion about a thousand-year reign. And that's a good place to wrestle with that possibility. 
But I say this because I don't think that this is the point of Psalm 90 or 2 Peter 3. Notice that Moses says a thousand years are as yesterday, as a watch in the night. And Peter says in his verse, in in, in verse 8, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. Now, I think saying something is as something is, is actually important. Notice they don't say that a thousand years is a day. Now, if my son John, just by, will of, by word of illustration, were to come to me and say, Dad, I am as hungry as a horse today, I would not sort of be taken back and say, John, you're not a horse. And that's not what he would be trying to communicate to me, right? He's saying there is a small aspect of this horse by way of analogy that is like me. And so what I want to understand is what aspect is that? Well, it's his appetite. Now, is he literally as hungry as a horse? Well, maybe, but I don't think so. Uh, Horses eat lots of food, lots more than humans. Sometimes John does. But the point is, is that he's saying, I'm just trying to express how hungry I am. And in the same way, I believe that there's an analogy that's going on here. So what is the one fact that Peter does not want Christians to overlook when he's talking about the last day. Well, he's comparing the Lord's perspective of time with human perspective. Do you see it? It's it's just longer for us than it is for him. Both Moses and Peter really are comparing the eternality of God with the temporality of humanity. God is eternal. We are not. Now, with respect to time, our lives may feel so long, but they are but a vapor compared to the ocean-like nature of our everlasting God, who is the Ancient of Days. It is just vastly different, the experience of the Eternal One and the experience of us, who are but a vapor. Now, I know that when we start thinking about time, there are some engineers in this room who get super excited, like God's perspective on time. You ever had a conversation with an engineer about this? Like, this is awesome. Let's talk about quantum mechanics and thermodynamics and how they impact our perception of time, which may be an illusion. We're not going to do that today. That's not, sorry guys, but I do have a simple but flawed illustration about perspective and time that might be helpful. Have you ever been on the ground and looked up and seen a smoke stream begin to go across the sky really slowly? And when you're doing that, you know that what is behind that is actually some kind of jet, right? You know, if it's going this way, not that way. And as you're seeing that jet, what you know what's happening is, is that it's probably like six to seven miles away. It seems so slow. But did you know that if that were, say, like an F-16 jet, that those jets travel at 1,500 miles per hour? Now, from your perspective on Earth, it's like so slow, almost like an Etch-a-Sketch. But imagine that that jet were to drop to six to seven feet away. Would that seem slow? I'd melt your face off. And it's in some ways the same way with God. He has a different perspective or vantage point. In fact, the Bible is often speaking about who God is and the fact that He sits enthroned above what? The heavens. In other words, all of creation 
He has a perspective that is greater and grander than any other creature, which, by the way, have been created by him as our creator. So there's a real sense in which, as we think about time and days, God, his son Christ, they have an eternal perspective that is unique from all of us. A thousand years is like a day to God. And no human, catch this, has ever lived a thousand years. Have you thought about that? Like we've never lived a thousand years, none of us. So none of us have even made a day on God's radar. And yet he shows compassion to us, cares for us, has plans for us. I mean, the brevity of human life should humble us when we consider the eternality of God. Now, why is this fact so important for us to remember? It is because from our human perspective, our brief lives, which are so short in comparison, can sometimes feel so long, right? Like experiences of this life, you can all of a sudden, and I'm not just talking about like the in and out line, right? Like life can feel long in our experiences, maybe even too long for us as Christians to end well. That's why you have folks in the Bible like David, the prophet Habakkuk, and the martyrs in heaven who are looking on in their experiences, and they have the promises of God in mind, and they are waiting for their fulfillment, and they are saying, how long, O Lord? How long till the promises are fulfilled? How long do we have to wait till you do what you said you're going to do? It's common to the people of God, this experience of waiting on God and for it to feel so long. You'll remember, I think this letter is written to the same audience of 1 Peter, and it opens up describing the life experience of those Christians. There it says that they are facing many fiery trials of various kinds. They are suffering for their faith. And you know that suffering can make life feel very long. Time slows down. It feels like you'll never get to the end of it. And I'm sure that that caused them to sense that Jesus was taking too long to return. Has anyone ever here felt that way? Suffering makes your day seem longer than 24 hours. Chronic pain. A terminal illness. Watching someone that you love die slowly, a strained marriage, unending busyness that you can't get out of, friends who abandon you, the repetitive cycle of addiction, loneliness, unmet desires, the bombardment of hopeless news stories through so many social media outlets. And let's not forget the ever-present battle with flesh and sin. It can just make life feel long and full of trouble. Our brief lives, they can feel so long, and we can begin to forget God when we think God has forgotten us in those troubles. You can begin to sense that God's not coming, that the change that he's promised isn't going to happen, that there have been promises made that will not be fulfilled. And we can see each day as a disappointment or failure of God rather than seeing his merciful, sovereign hand at work. Some of us, though we don't have a date on our calendar, when we think that Jesus is supposed to come back, we still can say, it feels like Jesus is late. And this verse really, I think, intends, hear me, to raise our gaze, raise our gaze from the experiences all around us, 
from our momentary afflictions that feel so long and weighty up towards our eternal, omnipotent Lord who is still sitting on his throne. He's still there. He's never moved. That's why he's, that's where he's always been. That's where he always will be. And that Lord, his timing is perfect. But even more than that, catch his motivation in verse 9. He says this, second, but Jesus is not late. He's not late. He's patient and precise. Now, it looks like the scoffers have leveraged that weariness of God's people in seeking to faithfully wait on him by asking why Jesus delayed his imminent return so long. Why so long? Had he forgotten them? Had he given up on them? But catch what Peter says in verse 9. It's not that this was just some fancy metaphor, that Jesus was to come back and set things right. It had a spiritual meaning. He says, no, it's going to happen truly. But catch this, the motivation of his waiting is this. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, there are a number of questions that we have to ask here. One is, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord in this text? The Lord, you'll remember in the Old Testament, speaks of Yahweh, and the day of the Lord was the day of Yahweh. But in the New Testament, we find that so often, Jesus is receiving the title of Lord. I haven't researched every use of Lord in the New Testament, but there is a a strong uh, movement of, of referring to Jesus as Lord in the New Testament. In fact, the New Testament normally speaks of Jesus as Lord, and so does 2 Peter. You'll remember in verse 1-8, just before Verse 111, 114, 116, and 220, he refers to Jesus as Lord. And he just spoke of the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles, speaking of Jesus in 3.2. So it seems like this, this verse is speaking about the day of the Lord who is Christ. And then second, the New Testament regularly speaks of the day of Christ as the day where the promises concerning that day of the Lord in the Old Testament are being fulfilled. Romans 2.16 uses this this way. That's where Paul says God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus on the coming day. And then in Philippians 1.6, he calls it the day of Jesus and the day of Christ in 1.10 and 2.16. The reason I say this is I'm not saying the Lord can't speak of God the Father. I'm not saying that it's okay to think, that it's not okay to think this is God the Father here. But I, I do believe that we should understand that the day of Jesus Christ and the day of the Lord seem to be one day. Because third, we shouldn't try to act as though the Father is going to do something different on the day of the Lord than His Son is going to do on His day. As though they have two different wills. See, the Trinity is unified in their purposes. It's not as though Jesus is God's merciful personality who does good things. And Yahweh is sort of like the guy who comes and breaks ankles or something. No, it's one God who exercises justice and mercy. And he does this through his king, his son. But who are the some in verse 9 who claim that the Lord is slow? It could be some Christians asking why the Lord is so slow to return. But I think it's more likely in context that he is speaking about those scoffers who mockingly claim Jesus is slow in returning. See, the scoffers were really taking advantage of these Christians who were growing impatient for the second coming. They wielded the the human sense of Jesus taking so long as a weapon to cast doubt 
on his return at all. But what promise is it that he needs to fulfill? What is the promise that's spoken of here? Well, I think he's pointing back to verse 4. If you look up at verse 4, you'll notice that he's speaking of the return of Jesus on the day of the Lord, the parousia. So God, he is not slow, but he is patient and precise. That's what Peter wants us to know. Peter says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness. I love Peter's profound reason for the Lord's timing. Don't miss this. Did you see what he says? He is patient towards you. God is patient towards his people. I was going through this text this week with another brother, and he said, and there have been so many used since then, haven't there? And isn't that true? Those who have put their faith in Christ, if that is you, you are one of those Jews to whom Peter is saying, and God is patient towards you too. God is patient towards us. His slowness, that sense of slowness that we have, is actually not slow, but it is God being patient. And what for? Well, he's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, that word for perish is the word that speaks elsewhere of the eternal judgment, the final judgment that faces those who do not repent and turn to faith in Christ. But some have used this text to debate whether God is sovereign, whether he has power over who comes to faith or not. Can a man lose his salvation? They ask those kinds of questions here. I don't believe God, uh, I do believe that God is sovereign over salvation. I, I believe that uh, he is sovereign over who comes to him. I, I also believe that God uh, tells us that he, he has people who, who we must put our faith in him to receive salvation. See, God does have a desire, though, in the scriptures that is not always carried out, spoken of as being carried out. So I, I do think that when we think about the will of God, we do need to recognize that there are two ways that it's spoken of in the Bible. There's a will of decree, which is always done. But there's also a will of desire that's not always done. Just an example of this would be the Ten Commandments, right? I mean, he gives the Ten Commandments. This is how I want you to live Israel. Israel can't even, like, Moses can't make it down the mountain before they've already disobeyed, like, all of them. He wanted them to obey. They could not obey. There are greater purposes for the law. So God has... a a will of decree and a will of desire. His decrees are always done, but there are times where this will of desire, they don't come to fruition. But I don't think that's what Peter's really highlighting here. See, Christians are in view. Notice, he's speaking of his patience towards you, believers, toward those who are the children of God. His patience is towards his people. God does something similarly when he warns Israel in Ezekiel 33, 11. He says, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn back, turn back from your ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? His point here is that they need to repent of their sins and trust him and follow him. Of course, God promises not to lose his true people in Christ. We have greater promises in the new covenant. But this tells us something of the character of God, doesn't it? And this is glorious. He's not a trigger-happy God who is looking to, to bring judgment 
above all else. There is a real sense in which he desires repentance and life for his people. Similarly, in Christ, we become children of God. And his discipline for us, we are told in Hebrews, is not to destroy us, but to lead us to eternal life. He wants better things for us. God is patient towards you. He's patient towards us. In fact, His timing is for our ultimate good, that none of us should perish. Now, God is often described in the Old Testament as, as patient. And, and there's a word that's used that's really interesting. It's a word that means long of nose. And it comes from this idea. I still remember my, my Hebrew prof, um, Peter Gentry, explaining that it comes from this idea, they think, where people would get red in the face when they were angry. And so if you were long of nose, it meant it took really a long time for the tip of your nose to get red such that you receive the fullness of your anger and then act it out, right? So a God who is patient, it means that he is slow to anger. He's not a God that just responds because he's angry, that he's angry with you or with others. He is a patient God. Here's the irony. In this text, while the, the false teachers are mocking the slowness of Jesus' return as a negative thing, Peter sees it as a, an outworking of the patience of God. He, he does not charge God with tardiness, but he praises God for his patience. God's timing is not lateness or slowness or absence or forgetfulness or abandonment. Maybe you felt those things when God has not acted in the way that you thought he should or in the timing that you thought he should, but his, his, his timing is always driven by patience and precision with his good plans for his people. Now, there is a coming day, and it will be neither too early nor too late, but until that day, we trust that our God is patient and doing good for his people. Now, I, I know that many of us can't wait for Jesus to get back. We, we see what the Bible says about the day that's coming. And we know that the pictures are small and incomplete, but boy, they are glorious. And they just set us to dreaming about what the world is going to be like that is to come. But I know there are others who are like, you know, I could kind of wait on that day. Uh, they say, you know, I still remember a friend who was telling me she didn't want Jesus to get back because there were just too many things that she wanted to do before he came back and returned. She wanted to accomplish a lot of things. She wanted to get a job, have a husband, have some kids, travel, and on and on. And maybe that's you. If that's you, be reminded the world that is to come is a world where we get to live in the same breathing space as our eternal, patient, triune God and a creation whose beauty is unencumbered by the corruption that sin brought in with an eternal family where tears and fears are wiped away forever and replaced by an eternal, unadulterated, ever-increasing love and joy in his presence. I, I don't want to delay that. As wonderful and majestic as this life is, we are promised it is the basement, not the ceiling. It is the ceiling, not the, I mean, the basement, not the ceiling. I got that right. It only gets better. That's what we are promised. But there is a sense in which, if we really understand that, then we're able to live in this life and understand it as having more meaning and beauty than we did before. In other words, if we really understand the last day and how it's connected to every day, 
It means that every day no longer is full of vanity, but meaning forevermore. Full of beauty that lasts not just now, but forevermore in increasing measure. Now here's a couple of ways to think about this reality that Peter wants to awaken us to. The reality that Jesus is coming back, and he's only waiting because of patience. For one, the brevity of life means our sufferings are momentary. Did you get that? Like, you'll have great days. You're like, Lord, I'd be okay if you waited a bit. And then you'll have bad days. And on those bad days, you are reminded of the day of the Lord that whatever this is that feels like it's never going to end is going to come to an end. And it's going to end well for me because I am in Christ and because of the promises that he has made to me. See, our sufferings in this life, they can feel so long like they're never going to end. And in those moments, there is also a spiritual element. Satan says your suffering will never end in those moments. But it's in those moments that we need to hear the voice of Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm coming back for you. You feel like you're alone. You feel like this is never going to stop. Like life will never be better. And Jesus says, it only gets better once I come back. That's why we want Jesus to return. That's why Paul, who faced whippings and shipwrecks and mockings and abandonment and imprisonment before being martyred was able to write in 2 Corinthians 4.17 for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If you were to stop at light and momentary affliction hold on mockings, shipwrecks whippings abandonment, imprisonment, light and momentary? It sounds heavy, hard, and long when you read it. So how can he say light and momentary? How can he say brief? Well, it's because there's another math that that Paul is doing, that Peter is encouraging us to do, which is to weigh the second part of what Paul says. It is that eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You can't weigh it. You can't use a scale that weighs an 18-wheeler and weigh the kind of hope that God has ready for you. It's, It's incalculable. And so when he begins to meditate on that, and he can't understand all of it because there's too much, but as he begins to understand more the greatness and the vastness of what it is that Christ has prepared for him when he returns, the more he's able to step back into his present sufferings and say, these are light and momentary. Not light and momentary compared to what's going on to others in the world. There are others who have it better. There are others who have it worse. But when I consider what awaits those who are in Christ, light and momentary. That's the kind of math we need to be doing in our hearts and our souls as we look to the day of the Lord that is coming when we are suffering. I still remember a funny quote by John Piper, and I'm going to have to paraphrase this. But he says, if your marriage is hard, just remember this. Life is short, and it'll be over soon. I remember I was young, and I was thinking, like, it's horrible advice. And the older I get, the more I see the wisdom in that. You know, this life is so brief and so, so often the thing that pulls us off course of being faithful towards Christ is thinking, oh, the suffering is so long. And that, there are real sufferings in this life. But we think, I just can't make it to the end. 
Like Jesus, he would understand. Like I just can't make it to the end. And yet God, Jesus says, I'm the eternal one. This is brief. This isn't a day in my duties. I think you can make it to the end. Look to me. Be faithful as you suffer. We will be with Jesus forever very soon. And our great sufferings will, A, seem like a distant dream. The worst sufferings you face, distant dream when you're with Christ forever. And second, will result in eternal rewards, treasures in heaven. But here, Peter isn't focusing as much on the rewards of God's patience as he does that he doesn't want his people to perish. He's warning them, like the the result of getting off track and not following Christ and looking for that day and living a life that's not ready is perishing. But also this means that we should be patient with others as God is patient with us. In other words, God's patient. We should be a patient people. As a church, Trinity Bible Church, we, we want to be a forbearing people. Don't you want people to forbear with you? Man, I so want people to forbear with me. I struggle to forbear with others. But I love for people to be super patient with me. I long for it. And consider how much God forbears without acting. I mean, the fact that he looks down on the earth in Genesis chapter 6, and the thoughts of all of humanity is only sinful all day long. Constant rebellion. How much forbearance? How much forbearance today for those who even claim his name, who are struggling to make it to the end? Patient with us in our sins and our fragility and our weakness. We should be forbearing with one another as God is forbearing with us. He patiently endures sinners. Sometimes he disciplines, but how much more does he endure patiently if we know the character of God? How do you know when you forbear with others? Well, let me, let me just give you some quick check items to think about as you think about forbearance. One is, have you considered your own sin? Are you the best person to speak into someone's life? Is it a theme or a special event in someone's life? In other words, is it out of the ordinary Or is it something that is continuously happening and causing harm to them and others? If it's just a unique thing, give them some patience. If there are unique circumstances, show patience. Or are there unique factors that should be taken into account in this event? How much damage does it cause to this person or others? Is it clearly a biblical sin or does it just annoy you? Do I see the speck in this person's eye better than I see my own log? Am Am I looking to myself? Can I forbear it, or will it cause me to become more of a sinner because I can't hold it in? Am I short of nose, or am I long of nose like God? Do I want to hear from and help the person, or simply make myself feel better? Let us be patient with one another as we wait, not being quick to anger with one another, but loving one another as Christ loves us. I'm not saying that we don't need to rebuke at times or correct but we need to constantly be asking, should we forbear? But most importantly, third, don't get caught sleeping on Jesus' return. Don't get caught sleeping on Jesus' return. Of all people, Peter knew, along with the disciples, what it was like to have Jesus tell you to stay awake and yet still fall asleep, as the disciples did the night of Jesus' betrayal in Matthew 26. But notice here how Peter tells them to be ready for the day of the Lord in verse 10. Here's what he says. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now he says here that that coming of the day of the Lord. People say it's slow, but when it hits, it's going to hit like a thief. What does he mean? Well, he's apparently quoting from something Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 24. You'll remember that in verses 42 to 44, he says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day our Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. If you were to go and read Matthew 24 and 25, which is preparing his disciples for the return of Christ, there is one thing that is clear here and elsewhere. It's this, Matthew 24, 36, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. Now, I think he's talking about the Son in his humanity, not his deity, because uh, the Son always has omniscience, the Son of the eternal Son of God. Uh, but he is, at times speaking, as the most human human. I think that's what he's doing here. No human knows the hour or the day that Jesus is coming back. Now, why do we need to do, know that? Because it's going to come like a thief. How does a thief come? I remember when I was younger, uh, I was a ju- in junior high, and we lived in a town where people often left the doors open. It was just kind of a thing we did. We trusted everybody, knew everybody. And one night, somebody came in. Middle of the night, took my mom's purse off the counter. Yeah, it was on the counter in the window. And uh, took everything out and then dumped the purse in the trash can next door. Like, we felt super violated. Why? Well, because we, had, we didn't know that people would do that. We weren't ready for it. We didn't expect it. That's what he means, really, by the nature of the day of the Lord being like a thief. It's not that Jesus is a thief. It's that he's coming in and people are not expecting it. See, after that day, our family double-bolted the door and added a lock because we were ready for that day when somebody might try to break in unaware. We, We were expecting it. We were ready for it. We weren't ready before. We were ready after. Well, here, what Peter wants us to know is is that when that day comes, there will be no second chances. It is going to come with a discernible movement and roar, and you better be ready. Uh, Notice the things that are going to come with that day, whenever he returns. We are told that on that day, first, it will come, he says, with the heavens passing away with a roar. It's a a word, that roar means a loud wisping sound, something that happens quickly and powerfully. Uh, One commentator uh, defines it as a word that means something like the roar of a lion. It's a loud, a loud sound that comes with this passing away. That word for passing away is interesting as well. It's a, a word that uh, in other places points to the passing away of this world for the next. But, but notice, second, Peter's main point is the same as Jesus's in Matthew 24, 4. He wants us to know that This day, we need to be ready for it because it will come so quickly whenever everything does pass away. Third, this description is a little tougher. 
This last description, uh, the second description says, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. We saw that last week, fire is, going, fire is going to consume them and usher in a new heavens and a new earth. And then third, the description says the works that are done on it are being exposed. Now, there is some trouble with this word exposed, but I think that it is, it has the strongest history to say that it's a, it is a word for exposed or being found. I take it more likely that humanity will be exposed before God in the judgment uh, Matthew 26, 40 uses the same word for, for being found or exposed, where Jesus found the disciples sleeping when he told them to stay awake on the night of his betrayal. Matthew 24, 46 uses the same word for exposed or found immediately after telling Christians to be ready for the thief-like coming of the day of the Son of Man. Before saying in Matthew 24, 46 this, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Doing what? Being faithful. Faithful and ready for the return of Jesus Christ. So what does Jesus say they are doing? They are faithful. They are wise. They are waiting on their master's return. And they receive what? A reward. They are set over all of his possessions. A future that we cannot imagine. Now the wicked servant says my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat, drink, and be merry like the scoffers of Peter's day are doing. But Jesus says in Matthew 24, 51, one of the more horrific images in all of the Bible, this is what he says about those who are not waiting, but are living it up in sin. They'll be, they'll be even worse off than those in Noah's day. He says, and I will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this really is terrifying, a terrifying image of God's judgment on the last day for those who are not ready, for those who perish. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you know, we take no delight in the images of God's judgment being met out. We actually believe that we all deserve it. It's only because of Jesus that we know that this is not our end, that we have a good end that awaits us when Jesus returns. But hear this, God is patient. He's patient. But he will come with a roar, and you need to be ready. Ready means repenting, turning from living for whatever you're living for right now that's not Christ, and making Jesus the king of your life, the Lord of your life, living for him, obeying him, reading his word, and seeking to be submissive to whoever or whatever it is that Jesus calls you to. You need to confess your sins today. Confess and believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you, for your sins, to make you right with God so that you get to enter into a life of turning from this world more and more towards faith in Christ until Jesus comes for you on that last day. Let me encourage you, don't leave this building without putting your faith in Christ so that you might live with him in peace forever, so that Matthew 24, 51 is not your future. Instead, your future is to live with ever with Christ in peace and enjoy free of pain, suffering, death, and this weeping and gnashing of teeth that's promised those who do not put their faith in Christ. Don't leave without doing that today. Let's pray.